They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. I'm going to stop there and just talk about these first four verses. There is a ton of symbolism contained in this first part of Isaiah 35. There's a lot of links to other biblical passages. We're going to look at a couple, and I did, honestly forgot that they even mentioned them in the video. This is just what I saw when I looked at this, probably because I learned a lot from the Bible Project. But we're going to look at a couple links. The first link goes back to Genesis 1. And then we'll look at the link back to the Exodus and the time in the wilderness. So in Genesis 1, remember, the earth is described as formless and void. Those two words, it's formless and it's void. This word formless in Hebrew, it refers to something that we don't quite connect to when we look at that word in English. It refers to chaos and confusion. It refers to a place of waste. And for a place to be void, that word, it does mean to be empty, but it means to be so empty that it's actually vacuous. These two words together indicate a place that is not hospitable for life. It's not a place where life can flourish. That's what is before God at creation. And then God speaks and he creates order. He separates things. He gives things function and he makes abundance. He causes abundance to, he causes the space to become hospitable, and then he fills it with life. His blessing is on everything he makes, and he declares that it is good. So with God, with him, is abundance and blessing. So to be in his presence is the source of joy. That's our source of joy to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in fellowship with him. And God himself expresses joy in creation when he calls it good and he calls it complete. That was his intention for humanity, to joyfully dwell with him. And though it fell apart, that is the eventual end of restoration for man and God to dwell together, to fellowship together. So just to give you a juxtaposition, because Bible literature often works this way, it'll present, an author will present something to you one way, and then they'll juxtapose it and show you what the opposite of that thing is. They're driving points home by doing that. In Isaiah 34, which is right before what we just read, you're going to read about something completely different. Uh, that chapter describes the opposite of God's blessing, and that is his judgment. And God's judgment brings sorrow. In Isaiah 34, 11, this whole section, chapter 34, is about God's judgment on the nations. And here in verse 11, this is a particular element of God's judgment. And the way this is worded is so descriptive and cool. It says, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Another translation says he will stretch out over them the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. That sounds like so epic. And these words here, confusion and emptiness, those are the same Hebrew words, formless and void. 
So what's described here in God's judgment on these nations is almost like an act of decreation. It's the removal of the blessing that he gave in Genesis when he made everything good. It's like this return to a place without him. It's characterized by lack, chaos, confusion, and emptiness. So whereas creation has all the hallmarks of his blessings, this is what it looks like to be apart from his blessing. Now, formless and void is also used to describe wilderness spaces, like the desert that Israel wandered through. Um, in Deuteronomy, Moses is singing this song. He's singing it shortly before he dies. It's recorded in chapter 32. And this is what he says there. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. He found him in a desolate land, in a barren, howling wilderness. He surrounded him, cared for him, and protected him as the pupil of his eye. In verse 10, that word barren, used to describe the wilderness, is the word formless. It's this place of confusion and chaos where there is lack. And in that place and in those circumstances, God finds his people. And they experience his presence and his blessing, which is with him. They dwell with him, and in that is great, great joy. So this, uh, let's see, I already went over that. So God brings blessing to his people in this formless wasteland place of the desert. So going back to Isaiah 35, here at the beginning of this chapter, God is pictured, he's restoring his people from a wilderness to a garden. He's taking them from this desolate place to this place of abundance. And this is a link back to creation and to the Garden of Eden where Human beings had their dwelling with God, and they were filled with abundance. There was abundance all around them, his provision, his presence. It was all of these good things. And that, to be with God in his presence, in all of that, is cause for joy unspeakable. And it is the kind of joy exactly here that strengthens the weak hands. It's the kind of joy that is your strength. It strengthens the weak hands, it steadies the shaking knees, and it calls the cowardly to courage. Joy is with God. When we come into the proximity of God, there is joy. Now, if you follow that logical conclusion, Jesus has brought you near. He has made it possible for you to come into the presence of the Lord. So if you are in possession of this joy, that is just a fact. It is yours. This joy is yours. So let's go on in Isaiah 35 and see how this story of restoration and abundance and dwelling with God is connected to the Messiah. He goes on to prophesy into that. So we'll start here in verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, and the thirsty land springs. And the haunt of jackals in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there, a way, and it will be called the holy way. 
The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You can see here, Isaiah's prophecy continues with more occasions for rejoicing and singing. Looking forward here, Isaiah says that when God comes to save them, when he comes to save his people, there will be all of these things. These like the lame will leap, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, all of these things. And he describes this flourishing abundance. He continues on that. And again, it sounds a lot like a garden where God's people dwell in his favor, his abundance, his blessing, his protection. For those people who looked forward with expectation to the coming of the Messiah, things like this, meditating on them brought great joy before those things took place. When the circumstances were difficult, when it looked like that could never happen, meditating on this brought great joy. Just as I've read this over and over again and preparing for today, like I can feel joy welling up in me as I read it. It provided strength when circumstances were often not joyful. Now remember, when Jesus arrives, his first advent, as a baby, his coming is announced to the shepherds by an angel. When the shepherds are afraid, the angel says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news, which will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel's hope. Remember Simeon. He was the consolation that Simeon had waited for. Remember Anna. Jesus was the answer to Anna's prayer that she offered up day and night to God in the temple. And we talked about before how hope deferred makes, makes your heart sick. But when the answer comes for our hope, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like when the answer comes. It's just great joy beyond description. So let's look forward, because this carries right into the New Testament as well. Look at Matthew 11 here. And this is a section about John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes. See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal places. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. So when it seems like doubt arises for some reason in John about whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, can you see here? Jesus basically replies with a paraphrase of Isaiah 35. All of the elements are there. And it's not even just a physical thing. It's not even just that the blind, the physically blind will see, and they did. But this has a deep spiritual connotation as well. Like those who are spiritually blind and in darkness will see, will see the light. And uh, those that have been crippled by all of these sin and death elements, they will leap for joy. There's physical components and there's spiritual components. And he fulfilled both of those things. And I think there's a good application in this situation here with John for us too. So we'll kind of depart from talking about what it all means and kind of go into what does this mean for us right now. So this is John the Baptist here that's asking this question. Um, He's the one that baptized Jesus. He's the one that when he looked up and he saw Jesus, he said to all the people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is sending messengers here to ask if Jesus is really the Messiah. He's saying, are you really the one to come or should we wait for someone else? Why does it seem like he's missing out on the joy set before him here? Like what's going on? I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that there's like four different opinions um, from commentators on what was behind this whole situation. And none of them are really fringy. But here's kind of what I see here. Some people say, well, John's disciples were doubting because he was in prison, so he sent them to Jesus so their faith could be built up. But John's the one asking the question, and the answer is being directed back to John. So this seems a lot to me like it is about John and Jesus, just the two of them here. That's what I think. Given that those questions came from him and the answers were directed to him, it seems somewhat likely that his circumstances had caused a loss of joy and hope. I know that sounds hard to believe. Some people say that could have never happened to John the Baptist, but he was a man. Um, He was a human being. And I think that that could have happened. So think of his predicament. John the Baptist is sitting in prison He's in prison, and he knows it's prophesied that the Messiah has come to set the captives free. And he is still languishing in prison, thinking, are you the one to come, or should I be waiting for someone else to deliver me here? He hears about the miracles that are happening. He hears about what Jesus is doing, and he's still in this prison. And when we are in difficulties, when we are in struggle, we're experiencing sorrow. It is not a big jump for us to hear about the blessing of God in other people's lives and in other places and to say, have you forgotten me, your servant? <laughs> have, you, have you forgotten me? What did I do wrong? Like, why am I still in this prison? And that's so easy for us to relate to. John himself had prophesied the coming kingdom, and he prophesied a baptism of fire neither of which he had seen yet. And he is just sitting in prison while all this stuff goes on. So Jesus answers him. 
He replies to him with this paraphrase of Isaiah 35. He replies by saying that he is the fulfillment of the joy of Israel. He says in so many words, I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for. I am God dwelling among men and with me is the restoration of the kingdom and the joy that comes with that. That's his answer to John's despondency. I am the one that you have hoped for. And it's the same answer for us when our joy is tested. And inside of this, I find there is a little bit of an uncomfortable truth every time we look at someone in a biblical story that was in proximity to Jesus himself while he was here on earth. I think for me, back when I was less experienced with the Lord, my instinct was to say, how in the world could you ever doubt that? I mean, he's right next to you. I wish he was right next to, you know, thinking all of these things. So if we were to say to John, after all you have seen, how in the world could you doubt? How could you give up your joy? How could you doubt? And I think he would say, me? How could I doubt? How could you give up your joy? He has given you his spirit. He has made you the dwelling place of his presence. How in the world could you ever doubt? How could you ever give up your joy? And like, that's really confrontational when I think of that, because it's just true. That's just the facts. It's true. And with joy and the other things that we'll talk about during Advent, hope, peace, joy, love, all of those things are something that you can surrender And you'll find often that in these stories, there was a circumstance that someone was confronted with. And in that circumstance was the enemy saying, see, things did not turn out like you thought. They did not turn out according to your interpretation of scripture. Now give me your hope. Surrender it. They didn't turn it out like you thought. Now surrender your peace, your joy, your love, all of those things. And we have to choose joy, peace, hope, and love, and say, no, I will not surrender that because it is mine in the Lord. It is the fruit of the Spirit is my inheritance, and I will not give it up. He can't rob it from us, but we can sure hand it over. And I think that's a lesson here on what was happening. Don't hand that over. And Jesus talks about sorrow and joy. He gives us an awesome perspective on this. Uh, He talks about it in John 16. Sorrow turned to joy. Now, Jesus is saying this. He's giving this whole discourse shortly before he is betrayed. And this is what he says. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they said, what is this he is saying in a little while? We don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. 
in a little while is a common biblical expression. It's used by Jesus in other parts of the Gospels, and a similar expression is often used in the Old Testament to describe the coming time of God's judgment and his salvation. It's used to describe the day of the Lord in a little while. So here Jesus is referring to this short little time between when he dies and when he is resurrected. That's the specific little while that he's referring to here. And as I thought about this, I thought that short time is like a microcosm representation of what we're experiencing now. The short time between when Jesus ascended and went to be with the Father and the time of his return. I think that in a little while applies to our time that we're in right now as well. In the scope of eternity, the time between Jesus' ascension and his return is a little while. So I'd like to look at this, these days that the disciples had between Jesus' death and his resurrection as a microcosm of what we're living in as the church. So Jesus tells the disciples that during this time, they are going to weep and they will mourn while the world rejoices. And after Jesus was crucified, that is exactly what happened. The people that had him killed thought the problem was solved. And those that were looking to him to redeem Israel were, they were dismayed. Um, Some of them, they didn't know what to think. And this is really well portrayed when you look at the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus meets with these two disciples on the road, and they're having a dispute between the two of them about the events surrounding Jesus' death. And it says that they were discouraged. They expected Jesus to redeem Israel, and instead he's crucified. And now they've heard the story about the empty tomb. They've heard the story that Jesus is alive, but someone goes to the tomb and he's not there. They don't see him. So they're experiencing sorrow and confusion, just like he said that they would. Things had not turned out as they had anticipated. So let's look back um, in, we'll look at uh, John 16 again, further on. And uh, Jesus here is talking about a woman giving birth and this whole sorrow and joy thing. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This analogy of a woman giving birth being compared to new creation and the full coming and the coming of God's kingdom and all of those things, this is a really common analogy. We're used to reading this. It's many places throughout the Bible, and it is very fitting. It's a great comparison. And all of labor is a great comparison for what's happening here. But as I read this, I remembered something that I learned, both through education and experience. Um, There was a time in my life where I went through training to be a doula. And that is a Greek word for someone who supports another woman in labor. So I had to learn a lot about childbirth. Also, I have four kids. So I have experienced this firsthand, and these things really sync up well. Now, there are three stages to labor. 
there's three stages to that part. There's the early stage, the active stage, and then there's the final stage, which I think maps awesome onto this in a little while time that Jesus was talking about. Now where early and active labor, those can take days, but this last stage can just take minutes. This last stage has a fitting name. It's called transition. It's the transition stage, and it is the last stage before the baby is born. And it's the final stage of labor. The textbook definition of this, just to give you a little background, is basically when a baby is born when someone is dilated to 10 centimeters. So in transition, you'll go from 7 centimeters to 10 centimeters. And whereas the rest of it took a long time, sometimes this can happen as quickly as 15 minutes. It's just like that. And it is characterized by intensity. All of labor is intense, but when a woman gets into transition, it is really intense. It like ramps up big, big time. And this transition phase where the whole body prepares for the imminent delivery of this new life. It can have all of these manifestations. And in class, they taught us not to like, you know, encourage messing with them or make them stop what they're doing and check them to see how many centimeters dilated they are. They, they said, just observe the woman. Just observe the mother as she's getting ready to birth this child. And you will know that the time is near. You'll see what she does. She may shake. She may get chills. She may be sick to her stomach. She may become confused and disoriented. All of these things are because of how intense the transition is, because the new birth is almost here. And we were taught in those times to, to remind them, hey, hey, it's almost over. Endure Remember the joy that is set before you and why you are doing this. It's almost here. I know it feels dark and it feels like you can't do one more minute, but you are almost done. We would remind them, if we were taught to remind them, to endure because of the joy set before them. What an awesome analogy for what Jesus' disciples were going through. He says to them that when you see me again, your heart will rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. Imagine this in our terms. We are in the time between when Jesus has gone to be with the Father and when we see him again at his second advent, his return. Also, we have the Holy Spirit Anytime I talk about looking forward to the fulfillment of all things, I never want to disregard the fact how much we have now that we are God's dwelling place, that his spirit lives inside of us, that he has made us a new creation right here. I don't want to detract from that. And I also want to say there's more. There's more to come. So we also have the Holy Spirit. And right now, no one can take our joy from us. It is the fruit of the Spirit that lives inside of us. It belongs to us. Now, like I said before, we can forfeit it by becoming focused on sorrow and on circumstances, and we can become despondent and give that up. But it can't be robbed from us. It's ours. So if that is true, if it's true now that our hearts rejoice and that no one can take our joy away, how much more so will it be true when we see him at his second coming? It's a lot more so 
It's going to be that much more true. At the fulfillment of all things, joy as well as many other things like hope, peace, and love, that's going to become the sum total of our experience. There will be no room for anything else in the fullness of God's presence. It will be amazing. We look forward to that, and we rejoice now because it's our destiny, because it's coming. No matter what our circumstances are, we rejoice now. So in the meantime, as we go through transition, the transition from the old age to the age to come, when things are intense and dark because it's around the corner, as we go through that, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now for the joy set before us, we endure. And we also offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. And we rejoice that Jesus said he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will come back for us. Just as the disciples watched him go, we will see him return. And he will welcome us then into his presence forever, into that awesome abundance and blessing and fellowship. We'll be there with him forever. And in that, we rejoice even today. Let's pray. There are no words, Lord, to thank you for, for what you've made possible, for what you've done, that you've redeemed us, that you've reconciled us. The only response, Lord, is that we offer ourselves to you as those living sacrifices, Lord, to glorify you, to proclaim your name, to live our lives on your behalf, to be your representatives. Lord, help us to do that. Help us, help us, help us. And we just do that from a place of love, peace, rest, trust in you, Lord. I pray that you would deepen our revelation of who you are and who we are in you. And we just pray for your will to be done and for your kingdom to come, Lord, in our hearts and in the world. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.